Welcome to Bioethics in the Margins. We are a group of bioethicists from different institutions across the country. This podcast represents our views and those of our guests, but we do not speak for our universities or medical centers, nor for any formalized bioethics organizations. Our mission is to bring marginalized topics and voices into the bioethics discourse. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Amelia Barwise, Assistant Professor of Medicine and Biomedical Ethics at the Mayo Clinic, and Dr. Kirk Johnson, Assistant Professor of Justice Studies and Medical Humanities at Montclair State University. Please enjoy this conversation. Welcome to a new episode of Bioethics in the Margins. We're very happy to have our colleague from the Race Affinity Group here today, Jada Wiggleton-Little, and she is a PhD student in philosophy at UC San Diego. Welcome, Jada, and I'm going to let Kirk take over from here. Well, yeah. Um, well, before we start, uh, Jada, can you um, just introduce yourself, a little bit about your background, uh, where you're studying as a PhD student, and what is your focus of research? Absolutely. First off, thank you so much for having me on the great podcast. I'm super excited. I am a PhD candidate. As was mentioned at UC San Diego, I'm getting my PhD in philosophy, um, specifically focusing on bioethics, social epistemology, and philosophy of mind, all kind of those subgroups, all on how they discuss and focus on pain um, and pain communication. So originally from Charlotte, North Carolina, did my undergrad at a small liberal arts school, Davidson College, and kind of always been interested in philosophy and medicine. So was always a philosophy major, um, like many college students started off pre-med um, and then realized I was just more passionate about kind of breaking down our concepts and assumptions with how we do medicine and really challenging those questions. Um, and especially how those concepts and assumptions relate to marginalized communities. And so that's kind of what projected me into a more bioethics career. Oh, that is uh, awesome. And looking forward to calling you, officially calling you doctor. Um, So we wish you all the best in uh, the last uh, stages of your PhD work, Um, as we all know, which is very uh, stressful (laughs) at times. Um, And we know that, um, um, knowing a little bit about you before um, you uh, decided to come on the podcast, that your area of focus is pain. And uh, we're curious, uh, what inspired you to focus on the concepts and perceptions of pain? And in your particular lens, what is pain? And I know that may be many complexities within uh, that question. Yeah, I would say, what is pain? The question we've been asking for centuries. Um, But yeah, I can start off what got me interested in pain and kind of how I approach pain uh, as a concept. So I was interested in pain mainly because growing up, I had a chronic pain condition. I had uh, chronic migraines. They started off really when I was, I think maybe my first migraine was when I was five and then became quite frequent when I was 10. And by the time I was a teenager, I was having migraines every day. And so I, um, as a cisgender black woman, was navigating, even as a teenager, navigating healthcare. Um, trying to get my pain understood, trying to get a proper diagnosis. Um, and I really got passionate about what is it that makes it so hard to be believed? What is it about pain that's so mysterious, right? Um, so it kind of goes into my concept of pain is that pain primarily is subjective. I think we do want to ground it to something objective. It does have objective features. Pain is often associated with some kind of physical damage or disturbance 
or injury, but it doesn't have to be that case, right? But because pain, especially acute pain, starts off being associated with the physical, and in medicine, we're, you know, we're in, we're in the business of treating bodies in persons, but, you know, initially the history has been treating bodies. And so for something to be associated with the body, we first look at the body, but then chronic pain, especially something like migraines, it's like, well, what happens when it's not an objective property? What if it's something we're not seeing and we really have to lean into the subjective? We have to lean into, we can only know if a person's in pain through their communication. And so as a teenager, I was in those spaces where I, I did have to prove that I was in pain. I did get a lot of commentary of, you know, you don't look like you're in pain or you're not acting like a person in pain. Are you sure you're not doing this for attention? Are you sure it's not just stress? Um, and they start making me ask the questions of what does pain look like? <laughs> what does a person in pain look like? How are they supposed to communicate? How are they supposed to behave? If pain at its root really is a subjective thing that we can only know through someone's communication, I then became really passionate about, okay, what is that communication doing? How are we taught to communicate our pains? What language are we given? Um, and why is so much of medicine based off of those kind of discourse? But we don't really pull that apart. We're not really questioning what is that pain communication act? What is that pain report? What kind of trigger words are we picking up on for certain treatments? And so that's kind of started my whole trajectory into pain language, pain communication, into your uh, pain perception more specifically. What is pain and actually what is pain talk? Is it something of just mm. communication verbally? I, I guess my assumption is you verbally talk about pain or is a pain talk uh, more um, in depth than that? Yeah. Um, so again, yeah, pain is just uh, this dual property. It's a mental state, right? It is associated with some kind of physical disturbance or injury, you know, it does involve the neural system, but often it's just an unpleasant sensation that's private to the individual, right? Um, some philosophers say, you know, simply just believing you're in pain means that you're in pain, that the feeling of pain being so subjective is so essential to the pain experience that it can't, can't come apart. Um, and so when we're talking about pain, when we're talking about these unpleasant experiences, often we're talking about it as a symptom of something um, that exists prior. But a lot of people have been talking about pain as just a vital sign in and of itself, calling it the fifth vital sign, right? It's just something that should be of interest in and of itself. But again, because of this is private subjective experience, we have to rely on some kind of communication, this pain talk in order to know what it is. So when I talk about pain talk in my work, I talk about, um, the different spaces that we exist in and how we're expected to communicate about pain in those spaces. So kind of, you know, we have the medical community and then um, philosophers always talk about lay people or the folks, right? Um, and how the folk culture is often very different from the science or medicine culture. So in the folk culture, that's just the everyday individual. Often those are gonna be the people that's coming in as patients. How are they talking about pain? Often in the everyday world, when we're talking about pain, we're talking about it in this like full personal, whole human experience, right? I hurt, um, I'm uncomfortable, you know? This is like, this is something that's happening to me. Um, so we're talking about pain as something that's happening to the individual. When I talk about medical pain talk or science pain talk, often that's getting flushed out in terms of what uh, philosopher Daniel Dennett talks about as the subpersonal, right? things that happen beyond what's going on inside the person. We're talking about the like 
or we're looking at neural mechanisms. Are we looking at like, you know, I point to, I'm asking you to point to the injured body part. And now we're talking about, you know, broken bones. Are we talking about inflammation, right? So pain talk in the medicine world is trying to be as objective as possible, is reducing it to the body. So while a patient comes in and says, you know, I'm in pain, in the medical world and that kind of uh, practice, we have to somehow interpret this broad, I'm in pain, um, even the facial expressions of grimacing or crying, we have to look into that for the subpersonal. We're trying to pick apart, you know, what pain mechanism is certainly activated. Is this a neuropathic pain? Is this an inflammatory pain, right? Um, is this chronic? Is this acute? Um, where is it located? And so talking about pain talk is what properties of the pain experience are most of, of most interest for the people in that communicative exchange? Are they looking for that kind of subpersonal that treatment targets often what the um, medical professional is going to be looking for. Again, that mechanism that's been activated is what we're going to be looking for. While the everyday person, excuse me, while the everyday person is just looking for, you know, treat me as an individual. We don't often think about our pains in terms of mechanism. When I say my head hurts, I don't say, you know, ah, the (laughs) the neuron on that side of my brain is suddenly starting to fire and inactivate. Or if I, you know, twist my ankle, I don't say, ah, the bone there is suddenly being fractured. I just say, I hurt, right? And so that's why I think the difference in pain talk, um, the difference between how we're discussing and experiencing and communicating pain outside the hospital and in the hospital is going to kind of have uh, it's going to be divided, right? It's going to be what some philosophers call incommensable. It's not going to be able to be fully translated because we're looking at pain from separate levels and from separate positions. No, no, absolutely. And thank you for uh, distinguishing um, what pain is understood in medical pain talk, as you alluded to er- earlier, and um, everyday pain talk as well. Um, it's really important uh dimension in the uh, physician-patient relationship, because uh, a lot of times when patients say, yeah, I feel pain, we think that, or the patient might think that the doctor is understanding it at the same level that they are, and vice versa, right? So understanding that the lingo, the language, right, is different and the understanding is different, I think that helps bridge a lot of gaps in communication between the physician or whatever the nurse or any other healthcare professional, as well as uh, the patient um, in his or herself or themselves. So thank you uh, for that distinction, because I think that's really important. Um, My last particular, um, just to add on uh, before Amelia dives in here, is, uh, of course, pain, you deal with it in wellness as well as illness. Uh, So during the stages of wellness and illness, uh, what do our feelings and expressions communicate um, about uh, pain, but just in general in regards to uh, feeling healthy, but also the complexities of feeling you know, ill or dealing with sickness and disease? Yeah, yeah, good question. Um, I must confess, I haven't thought as much about um, pain from the wellness standpoint. I have been thinking about... Uh, kind of the values that we assign to pain experiences, right? Um, So one view in philosophy is this view called imperativism. And it's the idea that when I feel pain, what I'm feeling or when I'm being told or communicated internally is some command for action, right? So the go-to example is I touch the hot stove, immediately 
when I feel the hurt, I'm told to pull my hand apart. I'm not told again that, you know, you now have uh, your skin is burning or the uh, receptors or your fingers have detected something. You're just told to do some kind of action. Um, and then with that kind of communication internally, we assign values, right? Like this thing burns. And so for me, this is a bad experience. It's something that I'm now concerned by. So therefore I take action towards it. And so I say that to say is that when we feel pains internally, we're socialized to assign certain values to certain pain experiences. And of course, that's going to influence how that pain feels to us. Um, so things that we are taught are normal or natural pains, right? We may not feel as unpleasant or feel as bad. And so the examples I look at is like menstrual pains or labor pains. We're given this kind of message that, you know, a menstrual pain, no matter how excruciating, is a normal, natural pain. It's something you're just supposed to feel. So even though it feels like it, it hurt, <laughs> hurts, for some people, it's not being interpreted as like something that's worthy of my concern. So I don't question it. I don't think I'm now ill, right? I think there's a way that I could feel excruciating menstrual pains and still see myself as well in that space, right? But then if I feel, let's say, an excruciating pain um, in my head, in my abdomen, especially my chest, I think the like chest pains is a big common example. Immediately we're, you know, given some kind of sign that chest pains is linked to heart attacks, which then is linked to death. We're, we see that pain as concerning. Any kind of pain I feel in my chest immediately sparks my attention. I'm immediately concerned. Why do I say all that? I say all that because I believe that gets communicated when I share my pain with you. So if I'm telling you I'm in pain and I tell you I have like a menstrual pain, um, you too are socialized with that same information of, well, you know, menstrual pains, albeit no matter how excruciating, can be part of somebody's, like they can still be well. So therefore I may not pay much attention to that. I think that's a flawed system. I think that's why we miss a lot of... Um, a lot of pain conditions for women, especially in the reproductive system, because it gets baked into this idea of like, you know, excruciating menstrual pains are just normal. They're just natural. They don't necessarily invoke to me, the listener, to me, the healthcare provider, that this is something concerning. This is something that indicates ill being in the individual, illness individual. But let's say that person was just communicating about chest pains, right? Something, again, in our society, we have, we prioritize chest pains. We immediately see that's a sign of illness. And so I tell you, I'm, I'm having chest pains. All the flags are up, right? We're getting everyone's attention. So even just in virtue of, yeah, how we, how we are taught and value our own pain experiences and we share that with others, what we're also trying to do is like invoke that illness or wellness feelings that we have in ourselves. Of If I'm telling you that I have an excruciating menstrual pain, even if the myth is, even if the societal message is, excruciating menstrual pains are normal, when I'm feeling it, I particularly interpret that pain as me no longer being well. And I'm trying to get you to get that picture as well, that this is something that's now worthy of our attention, that's worthy of our care. It's no longer a pain that's just a sign of wellness. It's no longer, yeah, you know, a pain that's just an inevitable consequence of being female. With children, we have similar language of, you know, Children sometimes feel pain and some people will say, oh, that's growing pains, right? That's a sign that you're just doing fine. How do we get people to see or how does a child who doesn't experience their own pain as a growing pain, they do experience it as something that I am now ill, I'm now concerned by this. How do they share that concern with others? And so I think that's get part of the language too. It's not only just saying, 
it's not only just trying to trigger in the healthcare provider that treatment target, right? It's not only just trying to speak and cater to the subpersonal. It's also in this whole different space, trying to communicate to your language a feeling of illness, that I'm saying I feel ill, that I'm concerned by this unique experience, um, and I want to grab your attention. And then somehow when I have your attention, now you got to translate it into your subpersonal treatment target mechanism language that's appropriate in your medical practice. So can you talk a bit most about a bit more about some of the barriers in society and, you know, among some clinicians that might sort of um, impede a good assessment of pain? Oh, I have to say, yes, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of barriers, I think, on, you know, many, many different levels. And that's why I think it's so fascinating about pain is like the goal, one of the primary goals of medicine is to relieve pain and suffering. But it is pain is this primarily subjective, mysterious experience. And so I think for that reason, it's a it creates a fruitful space in which all of our biases <laughs> can stand out and really be seen. Because again, no matter how hard we're trying in the science world, we have yet to come up with a way where we can objectify the pain experience. So it really relies on being able to trust the person, be able to look at the body in which the person is in and recognize that there's a body capable of pain experience. Um, it makes us question our diagnostic tools, right? So at each level from the biasy standpoint, um, I think one of the barriers is, of course, you know, people who are coming into pain, especially marginalized identities, um, black people, women, even children, we have biases that these are individuals that are not credible, that we automatically downgrade um, what philosopher Miranda Fricker calls like a, a testimonial injustice or assigning the individuals a credibility deficit we automatically downgrade things that they tell us. So again, if the part of pain management, the part of pain care, all relies on the patient's testimony, so the patient's report, and we have huge populations that we automatically downgrade their testimonies, there's a barrier right there on that level of, of course, the implicit bias, and how do we, and how do we assume knowledge to certain people? Um, the implicit bias also comes up when we're looking at the bodies in pain. And so there was a famous study that came out um, from UVA where they asked um, residents, medical, um, medical students, residents, and I think even attendants, you know, what are some beliefs that you have about Black Americans versus white Americans? And what came out was that people truly believe racist belief as if they were scientific facts. And the racist beliefs were that black people just feel less pain than white people, that it's because their skin is thicker, their blood doesn't coagulate as much, um, that more of a stimuli, stimuli is required in order to get a pain reaction out of a black person. So then when a black person comes into the hospital and they are reporting an extreme pain experience, one of the biases, even if you trust the person, right, even if you think this is a credible individual, the bias also comes in of, well, it's your body the kind of body that can experience that excruciating pain. So I believe you think you're in pain, but I don't see your body, given your racial group, um, same with genders, people tend to underestimate women being in pain and think that their bodies are more capable or have higher pain tolerances. Even if I believe you're in pain, your body is one that, you know, I don't see as having this excruciating, intense pain experience. So I think it's, of course, this prejudicial biases there. Um, the next barrier, I think, is when it comes down to language, 
again, this going to be this communication, miscommunication that can sometimes happen where healthcare providers are looking for certain code words when it comes to um, identifying what specific pain condition is present, um, what kind of treatment would be most important. And individuals from different cultures or different communities may not know to use those words. Like they don't, may not know the exchange values of those words. So I think a prime example that I've written on is the McGill pain questionnaire, the MPQ um, pain descriptors. And so some studies have came out that show by just having people fill out the pain descriptors um, and indicating whether pain is burning or throbbing, um, a healthcare provider can know exactly what kind of pain, again, whether it's neuropathic or inflammatory, and to know exactly what kind of medication to provide. And so something as simple as saying my pain is burning versus thriving versus um, prickly can indicate different conditions. Um, so even whether or not you know individuals in the everyday world are, I always say, like armed with that knowledge of like, what kind of words am I supposed to be using to describe my pain? If every day I go to the doctor and I just said, it hurts, <laughs> They're looking for, again, burning, throbbing, prickling. And that's why healthcare providers ask those probing questions, right? That script of, can you describe more? Um, and even location. So there's a great book that came out, uh, Thick. It was a memoir um, in which the, it was written by a Black woman. And she writes that she was undergoing labor pains for a week. And it went undiagnosed. Unfortunately, she ended up losing the fetus. But the reason, one of the reasons it went undiagnosed is when she called a doctor and said she was in pain to ask where the pain was. She said her butt, she felt the pain in her butt. After they realized that she was in labor, the healthcare provider said, we didn't know you were in labor pain because you told us it was in your butt and you should have said back. So again, it shows that in virtue of just language, we are looking for certain locations. We're looking for certain descriptors. And as a person who's experiencing pain, you know, as the everyday person, am I really doing the work or should I be expected to do the work of like, okay, where exactly am I feeling it? You know, is it high enough on the back to call back or is it low enough to say that it's in my butt? Do I say like it's on the left side, on the right side? I just know in this general area, it hurts. So again, biases towards our social identities. Also, you know, how much weight are we putting into language and whether or not patients have that same language, given that that language does code for conditions and treatments. And then lastly, um, in a related point, I think we have to look at the barriers that these diagnostic tools have as well um, in acknowledging and recognizing that because pain is this mysterious, private, subjective thing, that one person's pain experience is never going to be the same as another's pain experience, that we can't put too much weight onto the di pain diagnostic tools. Um, many people have talked about how, you know, Unaffected the pain skill is the, you know, your worst pain. Can you let me know in a one to 10, you know, how this pain feels? Um, again, everyone's worst pain is going to be different. So that sets the scale, makes the scale subjective there. Um, we know that people are going to not necessarily say this number that matches their pain experience because they're going to try to bargain. They're going to say what's going to get your attention based off their social identities as well. So if I know that I'm automatically going to be downgraded um, because of my social identity. You ask me on one to 10, you know, how's my pain? I, I'm not going to feel comfortable to say an eight because I might think that recognizing the bias 
world that I'm in, recognizing the norms in the space. I know if I say at eight, someone's going to accuse me of drug seeking. They're going to accuse me of over-exaggerating. So I'm going to say a four. If you're putting all your weight onto that pain scale of a four, then you may think that's not enough pain to do anything about. It's not an excruciating pain. So therefore, I don't get treatment, right? Um, but then again, if I did say eight, right? And then you say, oh, she's over-exaggerated. I'm still not going to give treatment. The the use of the scale as a diagnostic tool itself can be such a, a binding space for uh, pain sufferers, especially pain sufferers from my marginalized communities where, you know, you don't know if you should be stoic. You don't know if you should be um, catastrophizing. You don't know what number is going to get the person's attention. And again, from the healthcare perspective, the healthcare provider's perspective, they're interpreting the number the patient's giving as the number matching their pain intensity. And it's just not often the case. The number I report rarely matches my pain intensity. It's more going to be the number that I think you need to hear in order to get an idea of my pain intensity. Um, so even looking at just how much weight are we putting to diagnostic tools like the pain scales, like the MPQ pain descriptors, um, and just kind of being, if we're putting too much weight into that, I think that's a barrier for appropriate pain care as well. Yeah, those are fabulous points. And I hadn't thought um, so much about, you know, the impact of, you know, potential low health literacy and how people would... Um, sort of be trying to give the right number on their pain scale to get a, an elicit sort of a certain response, um, which is really interesting. Um, but your work also goes on to describe pain-related motivational deficits. So you're taking also your work a step further. So can you um, describe that to us? Of course, yes. Um, so like I mentioned, um, philosopher Miranda Fricker introduced the idea of testimonial injustice an idea of credibility deficit. So the idea that the social identity of the person speaking, if someone has a bias towards their social identity, they're going to automatically downgrade the credibility. And that's been discussed very recently in the um, bioethics literature. A lot of people have noted that pain sufferers from marginalized communities are more likely to be assigned these credibility deficits. Um, are more likely to be disbelieved. Um, so many news articles coming out of, you know, women's pain not being taken as seriously, um, that they feel like they have to have um, other people who come in a room to vouch for their pain experience for it to exist. And so I don't deny that that's a problem. I think that's something that's very much prevalent in our healthcare system. Um, the idea of pain-related motivational deficit that I try to propose is very, it's a similar phenomenon. So what I try to say is also happening is there's cases in which we believe patients are in pain, but we're just not motivated by their pain because of the kind of pain that's being expressed. So just as a person's identity can make us find them less credible, I think the kind of pain you feel can make the pain report less motivating or less moving. Um, so an example I give is labor pains. And so I've heard a story of a woman who felt um, after giving birth, after having C-section, felt unusual pains, quite excruciating. She was concerned. She tells her healthcare providers, hey, you know, I'm, I'm really hurting. And the healthcare provider said, of course you're hurting. <laughs> you just had a baby. Right. So how do we unpack a response like that? Is that a credibility deficit? 
unclear to me. They seem to believe that she's in pain, right? She said, they said, of course you're hurting. I believe you, right? But you just had a baby. And so what I think that, but you just had a baby move is excruciating pains post-labor is a normal, natural experience. One that, to your point, maybe indicates, um, that one that doesn't indicate illness, one that doesn't necessarily indicate a pathological cause, right? So for that reason, I don't have to give as much attention, care, or concern to this pain experience, right? I'm not moved to do anything further. And so what happens um, in that case, you know, the doctors didn't do any further investigations. The doctors didn't really prescribe any pain treatments. And what happened as a result is they later found out that during the C-section, her bladder was nicked and she unfortunately bled out on the table. But again, what was the move there? It was the, I heard you were in pain. I believed you. But the kind of pain I'm assuming you're reporting or how I'm interpreting your pain is one that's not motivating. I assign a motivational deficit to it. Same again with the menstrual pains. Um, so many women um, who have delayed diagnosis of endometriosis um, say they go to the doctor and they report excruciating pelvic pains, menstrual pains, and the doctors are like, oh, it's just a bad period, right? So anytime we put just in front of something, often what that does is deprioritize the experience. It deprioritizes the thing that's being said. You know, it takes away the significant. It's just raining or, you know, that's just a friend. We're automatically downgrading what's going on. And so because we have this myth, um, which this wonderful book, Unwell Women, kind of unpacks, that the people who create, um, the doctors and researchers at the time who were looking at menstrual pains, they were intentionally only citing people who had excruciating period pains experiences and reporting those in their research. So back in the 19th century, women who weren't having excruciating period pains actually felt abnormal, right? Because there was such a strong, what uh, Black feminist theorists call like a controlling image, right? There was such a strong controlling image of what a period pain should look like. And what that controlling image was, was something excruciating. That when we do actually have uh, pathologically caused excruciating menstrual pains, we can't see it because we're immediately unmotivated to do further investigations. And so that's what I call this pain-related motivational deficit is how does our healthcare system, how does medicine's language and practice or research or even lack of research paint certain pain experiences as important and concerning and paint other pain experiences as not important and concerning. And so the ones I mainly look at are the labor pains, menstrual pains, but also this vague diagnosis that I've um, seen in the literature of obesity pains, so people who are obese when they complain about pains. Again, the assumption is, I believe you're in pain, but you're just in pain because you're obese. So I don't do any further inve investigation. I don't sign any treatment. I just tell you to lose weight. I'll call that as another example of a pain-related motivational deficit. And then addiction withdrawals as well, because um, often the case, those who are seeking drugs, we know, it is an illness. Um, it is a painful experience. Withdrawal is a painful experience. But because we see these individuals as blameworthy for their pain, as deserving of their pains, again, it's not worthy of our attention or care. Maybe we're less sympathetic or empathetic to those pain experiences as something as alarming um, as chest pains. Well, thank you, um, Jada, for 
for that response. So it sounds like not only there is a, a, a truncation of understanding pain, it sounds like there is an apathy towards individuals with pain, and that apathy varies based off of that individual's um, socioeconomic uh, background or experience. Uh, I'm curious, because obviously this is a problem, um, and, and it leads to poor health outcomes and harms a patient, right? It definitely is non, definitely has maleficence, not non-maleficence, right? As we understand in bioethical term. I'm interested of how we should, or how you think we should reascribe our understanding of pain mm. and diagnosis. And um, what type of metrics, I guess, uh, if you know, if you're at a particular clinic, doing a talk at a hospital, what type of metrics uh, we ought to use or at least consider using in uh, reascribing pain in a more accurate and humane way? Uh, yes, good. I think um, when I'll start on the inst institutional level and then you know, work down to the individual hospital and then even the individual provider-patient relationship, I think even on the institutional level, you know, you know, the, the saying goes, put your money where your mouth is, right? Where where we put our research or time um, and financial backings also gives some kind of indication of what pain experiences or what bodies are have priority and what don't, right? Um, so what's fascinating is, you know, menstrual pains have been around for <laughs> since the beginning of mankind, right? It's a very common experience, but so little research has actually gone into it. Right. So even on the institutional level, we have this kind of message of this is a pain experience um, of a unique body type that we're apathetic to. Right. We're not we're not putting time to invest and see when is it a normal experience and when does it then go into the terms of pathological. Um, when it comes to the hospital spaces, I think often it's also the case where we have to look at the conditions in which healthcare providers are working, because what I want to be careful to say is sometimes we're apathetic, you know, because of biases um, and discrimination and these impacts of these controlling images. But sometimes we're also apathetic because our times and attention is just elsewhere, right? What kind of hospital conditions are existing where, you know, if there's a nurse shortage or if healthcare providers are only expected to have five, seven minutes. And so you have to make these quick, fast, you know, heuristic decisions of what moves you and what doesn't. So if you say, oh, I have excruciating menstrual pain, even if you wanted to do follow-up questions because of all the pressures in the space, it's, it's difficult to even have the capacity as the individual healthcare provider in that space to be like, I need to be moved by this experience. Because, you know, you do know there's a chest pain over there. You do know someone with cancer in the other room, right? So at the end of the day, even in hospitals, we're always ranking pain experiences. We're always determining who does need more attention. And that's just a matter of a fact situation, independent of the biases. Um, and so, but because we're on such a time crunch, our biases do operate or can have more of an influence on us, where because we have to make a quick, fast decision, immediately I hear excruciating menstrual pain, I'm like, well, I've only got two minutes anyways. I know what's most likely the case, given the myth, given the, what I've been taught about menstrual pain, is that it's not this serious. I can keep moving. 
um, on the individual healthcare provider patient level on the what can we do from the diagnostic tools. I think at the end of the day, what's the most um, strong barrier is trying to still define pain as this objective, quick, fast, numeric experience, given that what really shapes the pain experience is a subjective value assigning from the individual. So by that, I mean, you know, I was talking about the pain scales. If I go into the hospital and you expect me to say, you know, I have excruciating menstrual pain, I rate it a five out of 10. And that's kind of the bulk of our conversation. There's so much valuable information that's missing there. So I think part of the diagnostic tool needs to be is taking the time to ask quality of life. So a lot of how pain experience can also be defined is through action. It's through how much is it impeding my everyday life? So even if something is normal for someone else, if you take the time to ask me, well, how has this impacted your life? How is this, you know, interrupting in certain kind of spaces? Or how do you relate to your pain experience? You may learn that for me, it is something that is concerning. It is something that is now debilitating. Um, and so I think baking in quality of life measures and metrics into our scales, which I have heard about. I had a um, student in one of my classes um, inform me that um, the VA hospitals have been looking at pain scales that have baked in these quality of life measures of, you know, I rank it a four out of 10, but a four out of 10 means sometimes I can get out of bed, sometimes I cannot, right? So it's baking in what impact does it have into my life and taking the time to really define and understand that individual's relationship to the pain. And I think what's a dangerous metric that we're still trying to, <laughs> we're trying to make it work. I, maybe we can, I just have doubts. Um, it's trying to come up with a universal, quick, fast, when I say five out of 10, it means five out of 10. When they say burning, it means inflammatory, like these very quick heuristic approaches. I think what's gonna capture, um, what's gonna take away some of this apathetic responses, what's gonna allow less time for the biases to come into effect, is really asking the individual, what do you see of your pain? What is your life impact as a result of it? Um, and so from that, if it does impact the person's every day, even if on the paper objective, it doesn't come off as concerning, maybe I'm still moved to do further investigation because I, I'm caring for the person, not just the body. So really taking time to learn that person and do that individual personalized, you know, personalized medicine, not in, again, the objective pharmaceutical space, but personalized medicine in the diagnostic, how does the experience relate to your overall life narrative space? Oh, absolutely. Um, very, uh, very uh, interesting perspective. Um, and I think quality of life is um, a good way, a good approach, at least to start and think, because, um, of course, uh, intersectionality, of course, comes into play with pain. And because everyone has their own unique experiences, of course, the experience of pain itself um, is unique. Uh, um, I am also uh, curious about your your thoughts about, speaking of intersectionality, your thoughts about uh, connections between race and pain. Um, yeah. Does or what type of connections does a person's race have with pain? I know this is a heavily weighted question, granted our um, Western Americanized medical history. Um, but what do you think are the connections between uh, race and pain? 
in a follow-up question to that, uh, how was pain related to justice? Race most relates to pain, uh, again, when we're talking about expressions and interpretation of expressions. Uh, and I definitely talking about race as more of a social concept than a biological concept. I know there's still debates about that. But um, a lot of race relations with pain is looking at racial feeling rules and kind of racial rules in general. And so by racial rules or racial feeling rules, what I'm talking about is, again, how are we socialized and taught or expected, right, to express ourselves given our racial backgrounds? And so then that course can separate when we're talking about gender as well. Um, but for the most part, as a Black person, I think, you know, whatever gender you identify as, we have this racial rule that we must appear strong, right? That you have to appear stoic in a certain kind of respect. And that's what a lot of racial marginalized groups is that you don't show them that you're suffering. You don't show them that you're weak. So even if you're feeling an excruciating amount of pain, most likely you're not going to express it in the same kind of way. You're kind of going to be more likely, again, depending on how you were socialized or raised, you're going to be more likely to hide it. And so it's going to impact, again, this idea that pain is just a subjective private experience. The only way I can know someone's in pain is through your expressions, is through your communication. And so for a particular racial group, it's more likely to suppress their expressions of pain. It's more likely to downgrade the expressions of pain. It's going to create a space in which people are going to interpret that that racial group, you know, doesn't feel pain. Again, this is independent of the biases. There are still just going to be biases and true people who truly believe that it's a scientific fact. Again, we acknowledge that this is bad science if it was, but they truly believe it's a scientific fact that black bodies just experience pain less. Um, so it is going to be the presence of that biases there as well. But again, it's going to be this tension of as a person who's raised in a certain culture in a community who, and I'm taught to hide my pain. Um, what does that, how are people going to interpret the amount of pain I'm in based of that expression? So that's just race relation to pain with expression. Again, race relation to pain with interpretation is going to tack on to those biases of, well, what kind, does that body really feel pain? You know, um, so even I think about um, Sims, I believe first name Marion Sims, uh, the gynecologist, the experiments done or enslaved women. And it was again acknowledged. Like no one, you couldn't deny that they weren't feeling pain, right? There was reports of other doctors in the room who were so uncomfortable they had to leave. But how were these experiments allowed to still go on? It's like, even, even if a black person is expressing pain to the degree in which they feel it, that pain expression can still be interpreted as the kind of pain you feel isn't concerning pain again, right? If I see you as a person who, if I see your racial group as less than human, um, if I dehumanize you, I won't assign to your experience a human pain experience, right? I won't assign or interpret your pain as something that's worthy of my attention. And that's what I think still gets baked up in these beliefs that Black people feel pain less is trying to justify that I don't have to interpret your pain as equivalent to my pain. While I would want my pain experience to, you know, motivate you, to push you, to be treated with some kind of attention and care, to be given some kind of pharmaceutical, because your group is not my group. And then the part of the racism bakes in is that superiority, inferiority is less than my group. 
your pain is also less than my pain, right? So is is the relationship of race is going to be always a downgrading downgrading of the pain, whether you know we're socialized to downgrade our own pain because of like respectability politics, if we have to appear strong, right? Or is it a downgrading of how people are interpreting our pain because the world is already going to kind of in virtue of the racial group, dehumanize the pain experience. The pain experience is somehow going to be less than. So that's how I kind of see race relations with that is the, the how we're taught to express and interpret. I don't believe there's any relationship between the biological and race and pain. I think we all feel pain the same, <laughs> as same as that could be, because again, it's going to be an independent individual experience, but we all feel pain, asterisk, right? Um, and then where the race and social comes in, it's just these norms and expectations of how am I supposed to show it, what is it supposed to look like, and whether or not I see that body, that racialized body, as capable of feeling the kind of pain that I think it should feel. No, absolutely. Yeah, race is a social and political construction. Um, it's been deemed that since uh, the mid-20th century, actually, in the, uh, 19, around 1950. Uh, but yet uh, these archaic notions and understandings of race still exist within our society and it takes, because it's ingrained and it's going to take a lot of education and of course awareness to untie uh, these uh, pseudo scientific and uh, bi biology type of understandings. Uh, so my last um, uh, question before I bring it on to uh, Amelia um, since we did talk about uh, the issues of um, negative uh, bias and unconscious bias and negative outcomes related to uh, race within medicine and, and understandings of pain, uh, what are some solutions, right? So what are um, or what uh, equitable measures do you think can help society manage pain? And this, of course, is uh, based off of socioeconomic uh, statuses? I mean, that's a tricky question. I think it's a, it's a, in order to fix the piece, we have to fix the whole puzzle phenomenon, right? Because um, it all is interconnected and interwoven in different ways. Um, so even to your point of like, you know, racism being ingrained, we know racism doesn't just impact pain care. Um, and so it's not just going to be a way in which, you know, I we address racism via this one pain diagnostic tool and it's going to fix the problem. I think it's going to have to be that big solution of, you know, who knows what that answer is. How do we solve racism, capital R? How do we, you know, tackle it in, um, in a systematic way? How do we change mindsets? Um, how do we change access to resources? But I think when we are talking about pain, small changes that could be made, of course, it's you know, asking people to take pause um, and kind of, you know, maybe even ask for others' input, I think was also dangerous is again, you know, you have a, as a healthcare provider, you often have a short amount of time in which you're working with the individual. You're often making an individualized decision Right. So it's just based on you and your own experiences and biases. And so if a person comes in, um, common case is always, you know, unfortunately, so sickle cell patients, um, how often they get written off as drug sinking, how often they're not able to get the medication that they need. Uh, 
and it's an individual person who sees the you know record for the first time and just sees a person who's you know been scribed opioids 20 times in the last couple of years who's been to multiple doctors in the area and it's interesting to me we'll even see sickle cell on the <laughs> document and still be like well this is suspicious um and make a decision based off of uh off of the information they have in their own experiences i think one thing could happen is you know before you jump to conclusions, even just asking a colleague, right, even taking a moment to pause and ask for yourself. And so one of the things that get proposed is like an epistemic humility. It's the idea, it's this virtue that we as healthcare providers to have where don't assume you're always right. <laughs> it's basically how it goes is how do, how do I acknowledge that I have this thought and how do I allow myself to still be open to the evidence, right? If I see a person in pain, and they're a person of a racial marginalized group. And I, you know, I like I'm having I'm leaning into my biases where I think they're drug seeking because they came in and they're asking specifically for, you know, a certain milligrams of a certain of a certain drug. Um, they're not giving they're not going through the script with me. Right. So I maybe my knee jerk reaction is they're not cooperating. Right. How do I take a moment to pause and say, well, what could be another explanation to the story? What if they're already in enough excruciating pain that they know <laughs> what they need? And, you know, if I was in their situation, wouldn't I too be like, you know, I've talked to 15 doctors. I know what you're going to ask. Why do we keep having the same script? Can I just say what it is that I need? Um, so how do we encourage healthcare providers to be epistemically humble that even if you feel crunched for time, even if you feel like I've seen this story before, you know, I'm being I'm being played, so to speak. I think a lot of people are just always afraid of getting it wrong. Um, it's taking a moment and taking that breath to be like, you know, what's another alternative? What is another way the story could go? And what really is the harm of leaning into that story? I think, I don't know, I think people jump to the worst case scenarios of like, uh, you know, this one black person's coming in, they're obviously drug seeking. If I give them medication, it's going to go in the streets and now I'm going to jail. <laughs> and it could, and it catastrophizes in very heavily, but still real ways. Um. But I'm like, but what if it doesn't? What if you actually just take the time to listen to the person? And what if you actually get it right? Um, and really just challenge yourself on the individual level. And again, I don't think it's something that can be caught when it comes to the race piece. Um, I don't think it can be caught in the diagnostic tools. I think the only thing we can ask for the diagnostic tool to be changed is taking the time to learn the individual. And of course, that can help trigger empathy as well where I'm asking follow-up questions, so I'm not leaning in immediately to the narrative that I created in my mind, but still having just the individual do that epistemic humility work of, you know, what pieces of evidence am I choosing to see that's going to give the drug-seeking label, and what piece of evidence will actually give, you know, a sickle cell label, including the very bolded sickle cell diagnosis on the health worker, right? And if you're still like, ah, I'm scared of getting it wrong, you know, what harm is it to ask colleagues, right? What harm is it to be in the space and be like, you know, do you do you think, like, do you think I rush into this decision? A quick, do you think I rush into this decision? Because I think more brains take away the power of the individual bias effect. Um, I mean, of course, it depends who your colleagues are, but I would like to hope that at least there's, if you take the moment to ask, it forces you to even check within yourself as well. I really like the way you um, you can take all of your insights and really offer such sort of practical guidance um, for ways to approach different patients with pain and to try and avoid some of these pitfalls um, that you've identified in your research. 
So where is your research going next? Um, I know you're completing your PhD quite soon, I believe. Yes. So yeah, I'll be uh, completing my PhD by June. Yeah, June 2020. Um, and so yeah, so the project, my dissertation is, uh, of course, looking at these like motivational deficits and kind of give it an account of it because it is something that hasn't been discussed before, this idea that we can believe pain experiences but not be motivated by them. And so in the future, I want to build off of that work and really kind of look at it in practice. And so I would love next step to um, have access to medical archives um, and look at um, current research that's going on or be able to kind of interact in the clinic to see again these impacts of these controlling images. So um, a lot of work has been done on you know what myths and biases have been baked into menstrual pains. The fact that there is not a lot of research um, on it as just an experience in and of itself, but even when it becomes an experience that's now pathological in cause. And so I'm like, what other controlling images are out there? Um, what other areas is lacking in our research? So again, looking at the labor pains, but even like black bodies um, in medicine, how in our medical textbooks, how in historic medical documents, how in current practices, are we talking about social, um, racial, ethnic groups as being unmotivating groups, right? Because there's still, there's a lot of work that's being said of being um, on credible groups, um, but what work is actually out there that's showing or giving this message of being unmotivating groups? Same with obese pains and these addiction withdrawals are the four cases I'm most passionate about. And so after kind of finding evidence, hopefully, maybe not, it'd be good if there's no evidence, but I'm pretty sure there's gonna be some evidence out there um, pointing out exactly where the distortion is happening, where is the ideology really kind of getting baked into the medical practice, I think will leave room for me to then come up with even more practical solutions. Um, I think as a philosopher, I do struggle where we're like, we're good at pointing out the problems <laughs> and um, unpacking the concepts and the reason why it's a problem. I'm like, okay, what does the solution look like? Well, I think if we can look in the concrete documents and the concrete way in which even our um, our physicians are trained and can say here in the way that you, again, language in the way that you're even articulating, you know, what kind of pain experience this is can give a, a impression that is a non-prioritized pain. Um, so really looking at like, where can we start nipping away at these motivational deficits in practice? Uh, where can we really highlight, okay, this is where we're getting it wrong. This is where our assumptions are getting baked in and actually baked into this formalized diagnostic um, instead of just maybe a heuristic, which I think is initially, you know, more likely than not, you know, this pain experience should feel like X, but now it's becoming a full diagnostic and a label. And I think that's where it gets really dangerous in the practice. And so being able to, next move would be actually identifying the problems, trying to come up with some further solutions. And then more broadly, I'm just interested in health inequities in general, pain management in general, which of course is a huge problem while we're still trying to address the opioid crisis. Um, so a lot of chronic pain patients are feeling the brink of that. It's like, while we're trying to take opioids out the streets, while we're trying to you know, close down pill mills, those who still need some kind of medication are left you know, figuring out what to do next. And so that'd be another area I would look into as well is how do we still validate, treat and give care to chronic pain patients while balancing the we don't want to overprescribe 
or create pseudo addiction syndromes in individuals as well. That sounds brilliant. Well, thank you so much for coming today. Um, it's been a really good discussion and really appreciate all your work. Thank you for listening to another great conversation on bioethics in the margins. This podcast is hosted by Amelia Barwise and Kirk Johnson. Our producer is Elizabeth Chung. Our editor is Nicole Strand. Our theme music was written and produced by Pablo Cuartas. And we are grateful for the assistance of Wendy Jiang and Benjamin Foster. Join us again next time.